this morning. My name's Christian. Again, I'm one of those elders that was standing up here committing to you that I do want to give oversight and teaching and leadership to you as, as a church family. Thank you to those of, us, those of you who joined us in this commitment. We see as we read a book like Matthew and throughout the New Testament that it is not a small thing that Jesus has called us to do together. It is not only a matter of believing in Jesus or knowing about him, but committing our lives to walk in his footsteps. And one of the things we're trying to do, even with something like membership, is just bring that to the forefront. Do you see what it means to follow Jesus as king in every area of life? Do you want that? Do you want to learn how to do that? I wanna learn how to do that. Do we want to recognize the essential role we have in each other's lives to help one another doing that? And I think that's one of the things we've found so often is that it's really important not to assume that understanding of each other, but look one uh, one another in the eyes and say, yeah, let's go for it. Let's go for it. Let's seek to be the people that God has called us to be. Let's trust the Holy Spirit that Jesus has given us. And let's seek to walk in faithfulness. That's even a big part of the reason why we're calling our series through the book of Matthew, Apprenticing with Jesus. We'll be in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 this morning. So you can open your Bibles there. But as we get going there, I want to stop and talk for a second. Because we, talk that we call this series Apprenticing with Jesus because we actually think that idea of an apprenticeship is a really helpful way to think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's actually built off of this disciple definition you might have seen in the lobby as you walked in. But the, our just conviction as we look at scripture, that a disciple is someone who's following Jesus by learning from him, trusting him, becoming like him and helping others to do the same. That it's not, again, only learning about Jesus or believing in him, though belief in Jesus is essential. Ephesians 2 says that we are great, saved by grace through faith and not by works. We are saved by faith, not works, but we are saved by a faith that works, that is demonstrated in the transformation of our lives. So discipleship is this idea of learning from Jesus, not just about him, but learning what he said, how he lived so that we might put that into practice, follow in his footsteps. But I think this idea of an apprenticeship is also helpful because it reminds us that discipleship is progressive. It's a long game, not a short game. It's like apprenticeship in a trade. I know some of you guys have gone through that, or maybe you're in the midst of it right now. Apprenticeship in a different, uh, different kinds of trades or jobs. And you know, part of the purpose of an apprenticeship process is to, to help you realize you don't just get to jump, flip a switch, and go from apprentice to master, right? There's progression, there's development. No matter how gifted or passionate or who you might know, if the system is working right, An apprenticeship is this process of learning, both information and practice, of gaining greater proficiency and responsibility to do what your master does. All with the the goal of progressing from apprentice to journeyman to to master. That point where you're not just self-sufficient, able to do the work by yourself, but able to invest in others. 
able to take others along with you, take on apprentices yourself to help others to do the same. Now, I say all that about this idea of discipleship as an apprenticeship because what we're gonna find in the passage that we look at this morning, it's kind of our first opportunity to look at the example of Jesus, to see what he does and says, and then go, ah, here's what it means for us to start to follow after him. The first three chapters of Matthew have shown us Jesus' genealogy, the, the, the background of his family the story of his birth. Uh, uh, We saw the ministry of John the Baptist that culminates in Jesus, like we looked at last week, Jesus coming to be baptized by John the Baptist. When he comes up out of the waters, the spirit of God descends and remains on him like a dove. The father declares, this is my son. I love him. I'm well pleased with him. We saw last week the way that Jesus in his baptism reveals the triune identity of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even as he identifies himself with sinners and strugglers like us who were willing to acknowledge their sin and their need for him. And with all that going on, here's what happens next in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, that's what I just heard at your baptism. If you are that Son of God, then command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, again, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. But Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. Get out of here, basically. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the chance to look at this example of Jesus, to see what Hebrews 4 talks about, that our Savior is one who was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. Thank you for Jesus' triumph over the testing of the enemy. As we now work through this passage, Lord, would you give us wisdom from your word, illumine our minds by your spirit so that we might know what it means to follow you as your apprentices in the example that you set for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Look back with you, if you will, with me at verses one and two of this chapter. It says this, 
Jesus was led up by the Spirit. This is immediately the first thing that the Spirit does with Jesus after his baptism, after falling on him and anointing him like a dove and remaining on him. The first thing that the Spirit does is lead Jesus into the wilderness for a prolonged fast of 40 days, going without food, to be tempted by the devil. That's the first item on the Spirit's agenda. All right, now that I'm here, here's what we're going to go do. What is going on here? How is this the way to kick things off at the ministry of Jesus? Well, again, I think that, again, this is one of those passages where Matthew is showing us how the themes and patterns of, the, of Israel's story in the Old Testament, the Old Testament story, find fulfillment, are filled up with new meaning in Jesus. I mean, think about this for a second. This, just the idea that the Spirit takes Jesus into the wilderness for a f- period of 40-some days, right? In the wilderness for 40 days times. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Does that sound like anything familiar? Anything else happened in the Old Testament for a period of 40 spans of time in the middle of the wilderness? Okay, Noah's Ark, there was rain for 40 days for sure. Yeah. What was that, Shervin? And in the Exodus, the people of Israel, after they come out of slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh... God leads them through the waters of the Red Sea into the wilderness. And for the next 40 years, they wander about that wilderness. Now look at the pattern here. Israel through the Red Sea into the wilderness. Jesus through the waters of baptism into the wilderness. Not for 40 years, but for 40 days. There's a symbolic reenacting of the story of Israel here with Jesus. We've already seen like in chapter 2, this idea that Matthew shows us Jesus as this new and greater Moses leading the people to a new and greater type of freedom. Look at what, actually this is one of the passages that Jesus quotes from in Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is from the, the, each of the times that Jesus quotes scripture in this passage, it comes from the same portion of Deuteronomy where Moses is recounting for the people of Israel the lessons that God, God taught them during their time in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. A time of testing. That, the word temptation in Matthew 4, it's the, it can all either be translated as temptation or testing. So Jesus is tested for 40 days in the wilderness. See the pattern? God tested them to see what was in their hearts. He humbled you. He caused you to hunger. Oh, Jesus is hungry. 40 days without food. And he fed you with manna so that you might know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. These are the words that Jesus himself is quoting. Jesus himself saw himself in the pattern of this story. But again, look back at verse 1. It says that that, that spirit took Jesus to be tempted by whom? By the devil. Okay, so this should bring up another story in our mind. Can we think of another story in Scripture where people are tempted by the devil? Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. That's also the pattern that's that's being indicated here, right? Not only is Jesus being presented to us as the new and greater Moses, but as the new and greater Adam. Not in a garden surrounded by abundance choosing to rebel against God, but in a wilderness starving from lack of food. Jesus succeeds where Adam and Eve and Israel and we have failed. 
He is that new and greater king who can lead us out of slavery to sin and death. Now, there's a great Bible project video I came across um, that really lays out this whole pattern of how God uses testing or even temptation across the, 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 the length of God's story. Um, it's about six minutes long, and it really brings out in a visual way this connection of what Je- what's going on with Jesus here to what God was doing with Adam and Abraham and Moses. So if you will, go ahead and turn your attention to the screen. It's about six minutes long. We'll, we'll, talk, we'll watch through this together, and then I want to come back and just talk practically. How do we follow Jesus' example in the temptations that we face? So let's go ahead and look at the screens together. The story of the Bible begins with God creating a beautiful world and then sharing it with all of his creatures. And he appoints Adam and Eve to rule it on his behalf. And God gives them access to his wisdom and life, but then tells them that there's one tree they can't eat from because it will lead to death. So they have a choice about how to rule with God. This kind of feels like a test. Well, that's because it is a test. But isn't that kind of cruel for God to test them? Well, not all tests are bad. Let's say there's a king who chooses you to fulfill a royal task because he wants to know if you are trustworthy. Well, I guess that's a test, but really it's an opportunity to do something important and noble. Right. But then let's say there's a rebel who hates the king and you, and he tries to convince you that you would be better off not doing what the king asks. Well, the rebel is setting a trap. Right, so a test could be an opportunity or a trap. And the difference is whether the one testing you has your best interests in mind. I see. And both types of tests appear in the beginning of the Bible. God tells them to eat of the tree of life and not the forbidden tree. Yeah, this is God's test of loyalty. God wants to rule the world with humans as his partners, which means they will need to trust his wisdom over their own. But then a rebel comes and tests them to eat of that other tree. Right. The rebel seizes this opportunity and twists it so he can lead the humans into exile and ultimately death. He turns the test into a trap. But after the humans fail, God promises that one day a human will come who will pass the test and defeat the snake. And as the story moves on, God gives a couple named Abraham and Sarah an opportunity to trust him by leaving their family behind to go to a new land where God will use them to restore his blessing to all people. So this is a test. And at first things go well, but Abraham quickly fails. He lies to protect himself and then he and Sarah scheme to get a son their own way by abusing one of their servants. Definitely not passing the test. But God doesn't give up on Abraham. He gives him one final opportunity, a test to prove his loyalty. God asks Abraham to go up onto a hill and offer his son as a sacrifice. I can't imagine a more intense test. And Abraham does it. But in the last moment, God stops him and provides a substitute animal in the place of his son. God then says he will fulfill his promise through Abraham's family because he passed this test. So Abraham passed this test, but he hasn't proven to be a fully trustworthy partner. We're still waiting for someone who can pass the ultimate test. Yeah, and as the family of Abraham grows and becomes a nation, God continues to test them. 
Like when the Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They have lots of opportunities to trust in God, to provide water or daily bread. But they instead blame God and even say that he trapped them in the desert to kill them. And so the rest of Israel's story in the Hebrew scriptures is pretty much the same. The Israelites don't trust in God and his promise. They're not loyal. And eventually the whole nation fails. So humans have an amazing opportunity to partner with God, but no one is really qualified. And so all of this brings us forward to Jesus. There's a story where Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. Ah, yes, the wilderness. And there he meets a sinister creature who tries to trap him. But Jesus trusts in God's wisdom. And he passes the test. Then later there's a story about Jesus going to pray with some friends and God commissions him to go up to Jerusalem and to give up his life. And so he goes. And on the night of his arrest, Jesus took his friends and went to a garden. And he told them to pray because tonight, he said, is the great test. And he prayed to God, please let this test pass from me, but not my desire, rather may your desire be done. In this garden, Jesus shows us what passing the test looks like. He trusted in God's wisdom. He loved others more than himself, and he confronted evil with good. Even though it cost him his life. Right. Jesus offered his own life as a sacrifice to cover for all of the failed tests of his people Israel and of all humanity. Jesus passed the ultimate test on behalf of us all. This is amazing. But that doesn't mean everything is going to be great in our lives. I mean, let's be honest, we're going to face our own tests every day. Right. Jesus said every generation of his followers would have their own tests that will force them to trust God in radical new ways. And these tests can be difficult and often painful. But remember, a test from a good God is an opportunity. This is why James, a leader in the early Jesus movement, said that we should be grateful when we face tests and trials because they offer us a gift. It's an opportunity to surrender to God's wisdom and to become more like Jesus, the one who loved us and who passed the test on our behalf. Cool, huh? Oh, sure. This is Cornerstone. This is what we do. We, we clap it out. Good stuff. I love the way that video ends with this idea that we see in James chapter one, verse three, where James says, consider it joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials. That's actually the same word as what's translated here in Matthew four is the temptation that you, when you encounter these tests, these temptations, these trials. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, endurance. It shapes your character more like Jesus. Peter in 1 Peter 1 talked about even though for now at times we are grieved by various trials, tests, temptations, the good that God does is he, he produces this proven genuineness, this tested genuineness of our faith. So even in the midst of Satan, meaning evil in temptation, or the way that James talks about it later, each of us being tempted by our own evil desires, we can consider it joy because God can work good 
and means to produce good as he helps us like he did with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit to stand up to the test. So this is what I want to do. I want, in our, our remaining time together, I want to look at this idea of what does it mean to apprentice with Jesus, follow his example, learn from his example through temptation. Let me suggest to you five principles from the temptation of Jesus. Here's the first one. Being tempted is not sin, but it is a call to fight. To experience temptation does not mean that you've already sinned. To see something that you know is wrong or twisted or not what God desires for you and to recognize that there is within you an, an allure to it, a draw to it, does not mean you've already failed but it does mean it's time to engage, it's time to fight. I think that's important to state off the front end because I think that one of the lies that can come into our heads when we are tempted by evil, especially if it's a temptation that we have encountered repeatedly throughout our lives and have a pattern we've been giving into is to think, oh, here it comes again, I've already failed. Might as well given up, might as well give up. I've already, I'm already in it. I, the hook's already in my mouth, if you will. No, spit the hook. You're tempted, fight, don't give in. Every temptation is a test, an opportunity to resist Satan's lies and to trust in God. As I mentioned earlier, we know that temptation is not the same thing as sinning because it talks in Hebrews 4 about Jesus, our high priest, as one who's been tempted in every manner like we are, yet without sin. So when we're tempted, we look to Jesus, the one who endured temptation without giving into it. We are never painted into a corner when it comes to temptation. We are never put into a lose-lose situation. As a matter of fact, God himself promises that there is always a way out, a way through. You may be familiar with this verse from 1 Corinthians 10. Sometimes again, a lie that comes in is, man, there is just something different about me. There must be something off and broken about me because I'm so susceptible to this sin of laziness or gluttony or lust or so. He says, whatever you're tempted with, it's common to messed up sinful people like you and me. You're not alone in it. Not only are you not alone in experiencing that temptation, but look what he says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, stronger than you can take. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape or the way through. Sometimes when we think way of escape, we think, oh, I'll get out of the situation. But look what he says after that. The way of escape allows us to do what? Get out of the temptation? Endure it. Stand up under it. Bear the weight of it without giving in. God's word promises us that because God is faithful, there is always a way through. That's what Jesus shows us in his temptation. So being tempted is not sin, but it is a call to fight. Look at the second one with me. Think about this for a second. What's the nature of temptation? What makes it so sticky for us? Well, I would say this, because temptation is always about trying to satisfy a good or natural desire or need that we have. But to do it in the wrong way or, or to seek satisfaction from the wrong source and especially to get it on our timing. Think about the example of Jesus that we see here in Matthew 4. What was the good or natural desire that Satan tempted Jesus to fulfill in the wrong way with the first temptation? 
If you're the son of God, what are you doing starving in the middle of the wilderness? You have the power right now to take the stones that you're surrounded by and turn them into bread. Why not do it? Get it for yourself. What you need, what you want, get it for yourself. Now, is the desire for food, the need for food, a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. It's a necessary thing. After 40 days of fasting, it's a critical thing for Jesus. And yet we see Jesus going, no, the spirit led me into this fast. He led me into this prolonged time without, without food. I'm not going to end it on my own terms. I'm gonna trust the one who brought me here. The second temptation, what was the good or natural desire that the, spirit, that the, that the serpent was, was trying to connect to with the second temptation? Top of the temple, throw yourself down. Here's some scripture back at you. God will catch you. He'll send angels. You won't even strike your foot against the stone. I would say maybe the good or, 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 or not evil in and itself desire at the heart of this temptation is the desire for deliverance, the desire for rescue from danger. I would even say along with that, the de desire to see love demonstrated. What did the father just said about Jesus at his baptism? You're my son, I love you. And when someone that we love demonstrates love for us in a tangible way, that feels great, doesn't it? But to manipulate them into showing you that love, force their hand to doing some grand gesture of love out of your own insecurity or selfish need for it right there, that's no bueno. The third temptation. Here's all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I'll give it to you. Is it wrong for Jesus to desire all the nations in their glory? No, you know why? That's why he came. He came as the appointed king over all nations, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But this time the serpent comes and he says, I know that's what you're here for. I can give it to you. I can give it to you now. In each of these with the bread, get it for yourself now. Throw yourself from the temple. Make God show his love for you now. I'll give you the nations now with a price. Bow down and worship me. Especially with this one, we see that idea of a good desire. Jesus has come to rescue people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. But to get that from Satan, wrong source. You're barking up the wrong tree. And thank God that Jesus refused to bow down to Jesus, to Satan. As a matter of fact, here's the crazy thing. Right there in, in, in this passage, we come across the first command that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Matthew. Great commission. We as disciples are to observe everything that Jesus has commanded. So observe this. What is the first command that Jesus gives in the book of Matthew? Be gone, Satan. And what happens? Satan be's gone real quick, right? That's what I mean by Jesus as this new and greater Adam. He does not listen to the voice of Satan. Quite the contrary, Satan has to listen to the voice of Jesus. 
This is our king. This is the one who can rescue us from the curse of sin and death. This is the one who has been sent not to bargain with Satan, not barter with him, but to crush him under his heel like Genesis 3.15 promised. That's who Jesus is. But stop and think about this for a second. Can you relate to the temptations that Satan brought to Jesus? Not the temptation to do something that that is outright evil, but to seek to satisfy good desires in evil ways and on your timing. To take good gifts that God gives us, good desires that God gives us, whether again, that's the desire for food or friendship or possessions, the desire for sexual pleasure, the desire to be married, the desire for children and to say, you know what? Dang it, I'm tired of waiting. It is too hard to wait to get this the way that God has ordained. What can I get for myself? Even if it's a cheap, twisted substitute for what God has intended. How can I make others, manipulate others to give me what I want? Even manipulate God. Now, I was reading one commentator where he said that much of health and wealth, prosperity, TV evangelist type preachers, They sound a lot more like Satan in this second temptation than they do like Jesus. Here's random things that God said in his word, name it and claim it and say, God, give it to me now. Be careful about that. Think about the ways over the last several years we have seen our country, our society torn about by people clamoring for what they can get for themselves, putting their allegiance by whatever twisted godless political leader will promise to give you what you want now. We need to think seriously about what it means to take even a good or natural desire and think, what can I get now? Jesus shows us a different way. Wait on the Lord. Trust his word. Look for him to supply. His timing is always better than ours. Not easier than ours, but better than ours. Amen? Let me give you a third one. When we are weak, temptation is strong. But the spirit is stronger. Think about this for a second. When we are weak, that is when we are more susceptible, when when temptation will come across as stronger. So one of the things we need to do as apprentices of Jesus is recognize when we are in circumstances and situations that leave us more vulnerable, susceptible to try to fulfill good or natural desires in the wrong way. Have you guys ever heard of this acronym before, HALT? Anybody familiar with the acronym HALT and know what it stands for? Okay, good. Two people. It'll be great. We'll talk more about it in just a second. This is pretty common, like even sometimes in like 12-step groups or groups that are trying to deal with substance abuse issues. It's basically just an acronym that helps you think about situations where you might be more anxious, more vulnerable, more prone to look for anything that can help you in the moment, even if it'll hurt you in the long run. And it stands for this. When you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Think for a moment in your life. When you've made the most foolish decisions, the most destructive actions in your life, can you see that you were probably in one or two or three or maybe all four of these? Jesus himself 
in his temptation, hits on three of the four. We don't see him being angry, but he's absolutely hungry. He's absolutely lonely, isolated in the wilderness. He's absolutely tired. And that's when the serpent comes. That's when the devil comes to tempt him. Sometimes those first two go together, don't they? Hungry and angry, we call it hangry. You ever been hangry before? Man, I have. I was thinking two weeks ago, um, I got home late. I way past dinner time. I was hungry. I was tired. And I came home. My wife is up helping the kids stay on track. We're getting ready for bed. I'm like, I got to eat something. And I found a Tupperware in the fridge, leftover chicken noodle soup from the night before, about one bowl left. I was like, perfect. This will be great. I'll put it in a bowl. I'll warm it in the microwave. It'll be all set and good to go. I sit down, get ready to take my first bite. And my wife goes, honey, we're ready for you. Come on up. We do like a Bible time, just like Bible reading and prayer time with our kids before we go to bed. And I'm like, Duh. okay, I'll come back to this in a second. Now, um, I go up there. We spend about 10, 15 minutes. Now, here's the, here's the part I forgot to add. About a month ago, we adopted a dog. You know where the story's going, don't you? This cute little pug named Poppy. She's awesome. She's so great. But I come down ready to eat. All right, good. I, kids are in bed. We prayed for them. We love them. Come down. I'm ready to eat. And I'm coming down the stairs and I hear the sound of the dog jumping off the kitchen table. <laughs> what? I didn't. I'm still getting used to having another living creature inside my house. I didn't even think about that. I come down, the dog's ears back, tail between the legs, guilty as sin, right? <laughs> There's soup all over the table. And I was hangry. There was no more soup left. That was it. And I railed. Oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't hit the dog or anything. No, no animals were harmed in the telling of the story. But uh, I shouted, no, bad dog, no. It was loud enough and violent enough that my girls came to, out of their beds and downstairs and went, dad, what did she do? Right? Like, dang. And in that moment, the very first thought in my head is, how can I explain how my reaction was justified? <laughs> she deserved it. I was hungry. I'd had a long day. By the grace of God, I just had a moment to stop and go, she shouldn't have been on the table, but nothing excused my response. I was hangry and I gave in to losing my temper with this little non-human critter in my house, right? <laughs> I had to apologize to my kids. I guess, I don't know if the dog understood it, but apologize to the dog too. <laughs> but man, that's the thing. Something like HALT, this acronym, can help us to recognize when we're more susceptible, weaker to temptation, but do not use these things as excuse or permission to sin. It's okay that I gave in because I was tired. It's okay that I went back to that website because I was lonely. Instead, see these things as warnings, warning signals. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust your impulses. Look to God. Look to help from others, especially if you're lonely or isolated. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for a prolonged fast and a time of isolation. So it wasn't wrong for him to be in that isolation, but it did leave him in a vulnerable position. And the Spirit who led him there 
sustained him there. And at the end of the story, the help that Jesus needs comes from the angels that the, that the Father immediately sends after Satan departs. The help that Jesus needs came, came from others, not just himself. What does that teach us? Don't try to fight temptation alone. If you're lonely, unless the Spirit of God himself has led you into a period of isolation, go be with people. Go be with God's people. Enlist their help to be with you. Don't try to fight temptation alone. I love the way that, Peter, uh, that the writer of Hebrews puts this in Hebrews 3. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin hardens us, numbs us, tricks us way more on our own than when we have brothers and sisters exhorting and encouraging each other, right? I guess right now, maybe I'll speak to the cameras for a second. I wanna to talk to those of you guys that are watching on the live stream. I'm so glad that we have technology like this where you can stay engaged with, at least in this way with our church family remotely. I know for some of you, it's, it's a medical necessity to, to stay away from a big crowd of people like this because of different treatments that you're going through or situations that you have. And I'm so glad we can be there for you like this. I imagine there's maybe others of you where you really got used to over the last couple of years doing church in your PJs on the couch with a cup of coffee. I get it. I really enjoyed that too. But I guess I would just say to all of you, if you recognize that staying isolated from God's people, even for legitimate reasons, have, has left you more vulnerable, more isolated, even perhaps you recognize that hardness that the writer of Hebrews talks about here, don't stay there. Like if you're able to be with God's people, be with God's people. If you need to reach out to someone and ask them for prayer, ask them for help. I see that hardness happening in my heart. Help me, encourage me. I don't wanna be hardened by sin. Do it. If you don't know how, who, who to reach out to, we even just have a really simple prayer request form on the website. You can go to cornerstonesemi.com. You can click on the resource tab. There's a prayer request. Just ask for prayer and we would love to reach out to you and pray with you and make sure that you're not left alone in a way that leaves you vulnerable. The point of this third one, again, is recognize when you're more susceptible to temptation and don't just depend upon yourself. Look to God's spirit, look to God's people and look to God's word. That's the fourth one I wanna give you. The fourth principle for as we fight temptation is this. God's word is our food and the weapon for our fight. You see both of those in the way that Jesus handled this, right? He's fasted from food from 40, for 40 days and 40 nights, but he has not fasted from the word of God. He has nourished himself, meditated on God's word. It's on his lips as he encounters temptation. Can you relate to that? Or if you're honest, would you say that your life actually looks like the opposite of that? You are regularly nourishing yourself with food and you're starving yourself on God's word. The way we see Jesus use God's word in temptation, it is the truth that dispels the lies that tempt us. So are you feeding yourself with God's word like your life depends on it? Because it does. 
The biggest truth that God's word offers to us in the midst of temptation is this. God is more satisfying than our sin every time. Every time, all the time. Think about it in your own life for a second. Has there ever been a time when you refused to give into temptation, but chose instead to trust God and endure under it, and then at the end of it, you regretted doing that? I mean, yeah, maybe regretted, not just regretting the fleeting pleasure that your sin could have brought you in that moment, but truly regretted trusting God. I mean, isn't there a pleasure, a sense of fulfillment that comes in passing the test? On the other side, has there ever been a time when you've given in to temptation and it's been worth it? Where it truly paid off? Or on the other hand, has even that fleeting pleasure or escape from tension and anxiety that it brought you in the moment been quickly followed up by even a heavier weight of guilt and shame and fear and a desire to cover up and making these pie crust promises to yourself, I'll never do that again. Jesus is more satisfying than our sin every time, all the time. Let's look to him, church. Let's look to him. The last one let me give you is this. Number five, trust that God is able to deliver us from evil and that his timing is perfect. His timing is perfect. Wait on him. Jesus didn't need to turn rocks into bread. As soon as Satan left, God sent angels to meet his need. God's timing was perfect. Jesus didn't need to throw himself from the temple to make God demonstrate his love for him, deliver him. God would deliver him at the proper time. Not here in the wilderness, not even at the garden of Gethsemane, not even at the cross. God would ultimately deliver Jesus not from death, but through death at the empty tomb, amen? That's when the father demonstrated his love for his son. He did not let his holy one see decay. He rose him again, victorious to life. And Jesus's deliverance becomes our deliverance as we trust in him. That's good news, amen? In that third temptation, Jesus did not need to bow. He did not bow, nor did he need to bow down or bargain with Satan for the nations by virtue of his obedience, even to the point of death, the way that Paul talks about in Philippians 2. By his obedience to death, God has now exalted Jesus to the highest place. He has given him the name that is above every name. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that this Jesus is Lord. Amen. And so this risen Jesus stiff-arming Satan's temptation. I'll give you the nations. Come worship me. Instead, in Matthew 28, he says, hey, guys, guess what? It's mine now. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I didn't have to go through Satan. I, I guess, guess I did go through him. I flattened him, right? I came here to destroy the works of the devil. I came to destroy the one who has the power of sin and death. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me now. So go tell the nations about it. 
Call them to follow me. Be my disciples, my apprentices. Teach them this new way of life that I am teaching you. That's what it means to be apprentices with Jesus in the midst of temptation. He shows us that it is worth it to trust God, to trust his spirit, his word, his timing. He shows us that God is faithful to provide a way through our temptation. Faithful. We're never painted into a corner. There is always a way through. And even when we fail, 1 John 1, 9 tells us that our God is faithful and just that when we confess our sin, our failure, he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us. As apprentices of Jesus, let's learn from him. Let's trust him so that we might become like him and help others to do the same. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his example. Thank you for his strength. Thank you for his model of depending upon the spirit, even in such physical weakness and isolation. Thank you for your faithfulness. You provide a way through. You provide forgiveness when we fail. Lord, would you re-fortify us as your people to fight well and to not fight alone, but instead to cling to that truth. You are trustworthy. You are more satisfying than our sin every time. As we turn now and respond to you in worship, may you be glorified in the praises of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.